thing. No, why not? The thing. The thing? The thing. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. He's doing it. Howdy, everybody. I always does that. (laughs) I'm Robert, and this is... I'm sorry, you got to say your name. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, And I'm Ira. (laughs) And this is Money Shot. And this week, we have a guest with us. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in the presence of a, a, a genuine, bona fide nerd-sperienced person, a NASA representative from JPL, Dwayne, I'm going I'm to butcher your last name. Say it again for me. Ben, ben Shadler. Ben Shadler. Dwayne, give us a little bit of uh, background on what you do. Well, let's see. I work as what's called a systems engineer on the Europa mission. And the, the Europa mission, the Europa Clipper, it's just been named, mm-hmm. is uh, going to launch and go to Jupiter and do about 40 flybys of its large moon Europa, which has an icy surface and a liquid water ocean under that icy surface. And we're trying to understand whether it has an environment that is compatible with life. Life. And I love that you say that word because the movie we're reviewing this week is called Life. See how that works. I was waiting for him to say it. We worked on that. We, we spent like 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this week we're going to be reviewing life. And uh, as well, we're going to be talking about our top five. Our top five this week is top five trapped movies. Because in case you don't know very much about life, they're trapped in outer space. That's generally how it works. Uh, so I guess, first of all, we should talk about the movies. That, oh, wait. As per usual, uh, we got to talk about some fan mail. Uh, so let's go to some fan mail. we got a little bit here. Uh, first of all, this listener says, I just listened to the Skull Island review. I'm not really a fan of monster movies, so I don't plan on seeing it. But um, I'm not sure if I've seen the other ones you've referred to. Would you consider the Lord of Rings trilogy or Young Frankenstein to be a monster movie? If so, I like those. Do we consider those monster movies? What do you think? You know, when we were compiling our list last week mm-hmm. with uh, top five favorite, um, it, it crossed my mind. It, it crossed my mind to mm-hmm. include Young Frankenstein, then I crossed it off. What about just Frankenstein? I had Bride of Frankenstein on my list. Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. It, which, but I crossed her off as well. Mm, not yeah. sexy enough for you? Yeah. Well, she's pretty hot. Dwayne, what do you think? That, do you think scream. Remember how she turned her head and scream and the jagged white in her hair? Yeah. <laughs> do you think uh, Do you think Young Frankenstein or Lord of the Rings, would you consider those to be monster movies? Uh, not Lord of the Rings. No? Young Frankenstein... Well, it sort of is, but it's really a comedy and an homage, right, mm. to to the monster to the monster movie genre. Right. Yeah. yeah. I would say so. I would agree with you. Dwayne, you looking for another job because we could probably put you on here permanently uh, if you No, I'm 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 good. Okay. I like my job as it is. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, okay. the other, right. uh, this uh, other listener he continues he says, "I did see Peter Jackson's King Kong and I liked it very much. I didn't see the original as a child and by the time I did see it in later adulthood, I couldn't get past the dated special effects and the 1930s early talkies style of overacting. But Jackson's Kong was very effective for me." Okay, Jack Black is not known for his acting range. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but as a huckster filmmaker, he was fine. Adrian Brody was an interesting casting choice. Certainly believable in a film as a film writer, but what about becoming an action hero? Did you see King Kong, Dwayne? Did you happen to catch that one? Uh, I don't think I caught that one. This is the one that came out a few years ago, not the one that just released. Yeah, I think the last one I saw was had Jessica Lange. Uh, oh, that was the bad one. That oh, was the, the four. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I've seen the original, which, of course, is awesome. Right, right. That was my top number one. Yeah. Funny you'd say that. (laughs) (laughs) Robert. Uh, So, yeah, I guess, you know, we... we, I don't know how I feel about Adrian Brody being an an action star. He doesn't ring as an action 
kind of guy, doesn't he? It's against type. Yeah. I still see him as the pianist. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, I like it when they cast against type. Yeah? Yeah. It's out-of-the-box thinking. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I still don't know if it worked having him in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jack Black always kind of ruined it for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, something else that we didn't really talk about last week. <laughs> this, uh, this listener wrote it says, uh, I totally heard the woman yelling in the background in your podcast last week. We didn't even talk oh about God. this, but we're up on the seventh floor, and I, I was hoping that people couldn't hear it, but there was apparently... a someone yelling outside through a lot of the podcast. Uh, did you hear it last week? Ira? I did. And I thought we should ask her to be our next guest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what do you think about the movie life? <laughs> Go to hell. Um, yeah, but she was getting a little crazy in the background. I think it's funny that she was going on for a good 10 minutes or so. We didn't even address it. We just kind of skipped past it. And I guess that's part of the trials and tribulations of living downtown. Maybe I should have asked her out. <laughs> I dated you three years ago. You made me pay. Uh, all right. Well, I guess let's get into the, the May movie. I say something Please. before we go into life? And again, I, I look forward to your, your synopsis. Robert's mm. very good at doing a synopsis. I saw a movie a couple of days ago, which I think was my without favorite. Without me? Without you. What the fuck, and man? I know, I know. And I think it was my favorite movie of the year, mm. uh, ever since we started doing these podcasts. Uh, you're familiar with the movie... Debbie L- Does Dallas. L-E-L-L-E? Oh. Yes. Are you familiar with it? I know of it. And uh, uh, Paul Ver- Verhoeven, and he did he did everything from what, RoboCop to Showgirls. Right. And it was, it was an erotic thriller. In fact, she, um, Isabella... Huppert was nominated for Best Actress. She didn't win the Oscar, but she was nominated. It was a smart, smart movie. Uh, well photographed, great music. And I just wanted to get in that little aside comment that has nothing to do with life. You, you could have called, man. You could have called. We could have done a podcast. Well, yeah. Well, you you movie the, cheated on me. Yeah. I, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this getting the awkward guilt. yet, Dwayne? Yeah, not the guilt. <laughs> I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this week we're going to talk about life. Ira, you want to talk about it? Well, Robert does such a good job with the overview synopsis. You say that, but I never do. Yes, you do. All right. All right. So life. Dwayne, do you want to talk about it? Why don't you I, talk about it? I think you it? should do the synopsis. Oh, I see. How I think you're the professional. Here, yeah. All right. So life is about a crew of five people who are on, on uh, the ISS space station. Now, I'm going to keep saying ISIS. I know I'm going to say ISIS at least three times in this podcast. And uh, we're not talking about the terrorist organization. Not yet, anyway. Depending on how this podcast goes, we might end up. But uh, we're, they're on the ISS space station. I guess that... Wait, what, is the, what does ISS stand for? International Space Station. So I'm saying International Space Station, Space Station, yeah. right? Yes. So are. it's just the ISS. Yes. All right. Not ISS being, Space Station. Redundant. Redundant, yeah. redundant. Yeah. All right. So they're on ISS, not having anything to do with Hamas, but they're uh, on ISS and they uncover some life. Now, I was a little confused at the very beginning when they were catching a, a, a some sort of orbiter or something what can Dwayne can you kind of clarify that yeah point? so so they were what they were doing was capturing a sample return capsule okay there's a whole strategy for returning a sample from Mars that includes landing on the surface then picking up a sample uh, blasting up into Mars orbit having a rendezvous with another spacecraft that takes the sample and then rockets back to Earth 
So this was the part that was supposed to be rocketing back to Earth. Now, they were having some trouble <laughs> catching it. I would think that uh, I, your eye roll is so great. I wish <laughs> podcasters could see it. <laughs> I can't imagine that, that they would have that much trouble trying to catch this thing, right? Yeah. So as a, as a scientist, the, they, they started out and they, they kind of they hurt my heart. Right, right at the beginning, oh. because there was that cliche of the meteor storm, right? And the 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 sample return capsule goes through a meteor storm and it gets hit by a rock, and that somehow throws it off course. See, here's the thing: if if you run into a rock in space, it's probably moving at the same oh, speed, say seven to ten kilometers per second. Uh. So if you were to film this, you would never see the rock. All you would see, and if it's a, you know, say it's a small pebble, maybe a little bigger than your thumb, all you would see is the flash from it hitting your spacecraft and, and, uh, and disintegrating into plasma and blowing a big hole in your spacecraft. You wouldn't hear banging. <laughs> right. You wouldn't <clears throat> see the spacecraft rock. It'd just be, it's like a bullet, only faster. Um, and, and typically if something of the size of the things they were showing were to hit a spacecraft, there wouldn't be much of a spacecraft left. So that's so awesome. So, you know, I love that we have someone here I from am NASA. I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll give them the artistic license on that. All right. But Cause then, they got to convey oh, that wait, yeah, to popcorn then, going audiences. But right? then, yes. then they go to catch the spacecraft. Okay. So let's just say that this thing is off course a little bit. And, and so what they did is they fired thrusters on the space station to move it into position to catch. Well, that's okay if it's off course a little tiny bit, little, little, little tiny bit. And in fact, in real life, the way that, that they would do it is they would not maneuver the great big huge Arm. ISS. No, not the ISS. They would maneuver the, the return vehicle. Right. And if that thing weren't under control, they would let it go by. They would never try what they did. They took the robot arm out there, right? Right. So mistake one is trying to catch it with a robot arm. Okay, that's crazy because the robot arm... Would break is, off, it, wouldn't it? It would, it, especially the way they showed it. It would have just snapped off. The other thing is they had an astronaut out there. He wasn't going to do anything. He was Why did he need out. to be outside? Why was he even there? Yeah. And they, there was some reference to, well, if it goes wrong, you're going to have to push it into deep space. So guess what, guys? Pushing... A space capsule in space with a spacesuit on is not going to move it in any appreciable manner. Dwayne, I'm getting the sense that you don't feel that this movie was very scientifically accurate. They did not have anybody who understands <laughs> orbital dynamics or, or forces in space. Yet, don't these movies tend to have a consultant? I didn't notice well, if there was a consultant credit they, at the end. They might. But don't they have but, you know, I, I actually know a guy who used to work at JPL who's done a lot of consulting. And, you know, he understands that his job is to tell them this is how the physics work. And then they say, well, you know, but that doesn't really work for me mm. because we want this kind of shot. And then they go and break the laws of physics. You know, may, may I just piggyback on that one comment? I love that we haven't even covered the plot well, of this I know. movie yet. This is, um, in the, the original Star Trek, and uh, I have the book, The Making of uh -huh. uh, Star Trek, and there's a whole section in the book that spoke about they knew that when the Enterprise in the master shot is wish, you know where I'm going, you know where he's, he's nodding right now, that A, we see it whoosh by very fast, and it makes a noise. And they discussed that, and they knew scientifically that's inaccurate, but the masses want to see it and hear it. Right. They need to hear that sound. So they knew they were being scientifically incorrect, but they chose to do it anyway. Sure. 
so yeah, we just accept some of that as. Oh, as, I just love that Ryan but, Reynolds is out there catching this thing like like a like a baseball player catching a, a fly ball in outfield or something. Yeah, and if you look at if you look at this this thing come in as you're watching it, I mean it's moving pretty at a pretty good clip, and it's a it's a big capsule. Right. I mean this is not a small thing, and and it, you you sort of see it flash, and the arm sort of it, it intersects bends with the back, arm, right? and the arm bends back. No, no, it would have just kept going. Because there's no way that arm would have withstood those kind of stresses. Okay. So we've got... Okay, we, we have Ryan Reynolds making his miraculous uh, over-the-fence baseball catch, uh, which he saves the day. Uh, although, plot-wise, was that even needed? Did no. they even need to do that? Because no. they, the whole point was that they, uh, they got this return capsule. They wanted the visual. Right. And to begin the movie with an inciting incident. Right. We, I learned that in Screenwriting 101, that there has to be some, even if it's a minor, something has to happen at the beginning that sets the tone, perhaps. All right. But, yeah. So they've set their tone, and then um, after they've done that, they, they start to uncover some of the, the samples. I guess they find life in one of these samples. They then wind up kind of uh, feeding the life, so to speak, trying to bring it uh, to... to it's, full state. They wind up naming it Calvin, and they wind up uh, kind of incubating it for a little while. Of course, the life has to go rogue, and it starts killing off certain crew members, and they're trying to create these different firewalls, so to speak, in order to contain it. Uh, all quarantine on this on ISIS has gone to hell, so uh, who knows how many different bacteria, you know, pieces it's been flung off and, and reproduced. Who knows how this thing even reproduces. But they're all trying to hunt down this main creature that keeps growing in size, has this incredible strength, incredible intelligence, and it keeps, it just becomes a superhuman, or super, super animal, not superhuman. Um, and it starts taking over the entire spaceship. They're trapped. They can't communicate with, uh, with NASA back home. And basically, they're fucked on this spaceship. Okay, so that's pretty much the, the plot. Am I right? And it slowly starts picking off these crew members? Yes. Or I guess as, as uh, Josh corrected us, that was the story, not the plot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned that. Mm -hmm. mm. We're learning something on this yeah, podcast. We yeah. yeah, we're informative and entertaining. <laughs> Infotainment. Okay, so, Dwayne, I'm going to turn things over to you because I feel like, as I was sitting next to you, there were a couple times where I saw your body language I could see you, your head moving, and it was so cool to watch a sci-fi movie with someone who knows all the shit that's going on and just going, no, that would never happen. And I could see your hands kind of tossing up in the air, kind of going, oh, what is this? So I'm going to turn things over to you, and I want, I, I want you to I see you've, you took some notes. I want to know what parts of this movie you felt like were incredibly inaccurate, and I, I, just, I can sense that you've got stuff to say about it. So okay. I'm going to give you the floor first. What do you think? Okay, well, so, so I'll kind of try to go through this in order. So there was, of course, the, the capsule catch. That was a big, big thing. Then, okay, so we, we get down, and they're looking at this one cell, and somehow in this sample from Mars, they've only got one cell of alien life. Right. Okay, that's crazy. You know, if there's one, there's a zillion more. Right. So, so okay, but let's, let's say let's somehow... Let's say it, it eats off all the other cells, so it maybe, only becomes one so. cell. So, so then, then it's sitting there dormant, and it's not doing anything. It seems to be perfectly preserved, mm -hmm. okay, which is kind of weird, but, but okay. Now, it should be stated that you study li possible life on Europa, so you are speaking I, about a field that... I am not a biologist. I am right. a geologist, but but I 
took some science courses. And, sure. You know, and so some things strike me as scientifically implausible. Right. So one of the things that struck me is they, they start playing around with the, the environmental conditions because mm-hmm. they want to try to awaken this dormant, apparently dormant cell. And, and they do it by rapidly raising the temperature. Okay, well, the first thing is that's a problem because if it's frozen and you, you raise the temperature rapidly, a living cell gets disrupted because ice right. crystals form and and they will break they will break if you do if you try to reverse that quickly you're going to damage the cell which you know is is just nuts in any controlled scientific environment you wouldn't do that the other thing they did is they changed the atmosphere now that actually sort of makes sense because because they what they said is we're going to try to change it back to something like earth's atmosphere in the proterozoic i think was was specifically what they said but they, what they were trying to do is maybe replicate conditions early on Mars when life was more plausible. So that makes sense. But the way they did it is the biologist guy reaches up and just turns a dial. And you hear this from gas coming into... Well, okay, they would... In a, in a controlled scientific environment, you're going to do that very carefully in slow stages. And I realize the movie can't be you know 18 hours long. But on the other hand, this looks like a guy just going, oh, I think this looks good, and we'll make it just like Earth. Uh, that, that was a little scary. Uh, okay, so then the, the next thing that happens, and this was really bad, they had, uh, they had a clamp that failed. Right. And so there was stuff venting and, and there alarms going off, and they rushed to the lab, and they find this clamp has been left undone. And it was the biologist, the, the, you know, the main... The guy who's biologist. in charge of He's the rig. He's in charge right? of the experiment. And he forgot to close the clamp. And, and they're like, oh, well, you shouldn't have done that. That was terrible, and I'm going to be watching you every... You know what? When, when you have a, a $200 billion space station mm-hmm. and people who you have trained to do these jobs, guess what they do? They make sure that every step in their procedures for shutdown before they leave a workstation gets watched by two people. Or one person's doing it and the other one is doing a Taking checklist. Taking notes, okay. Absolutely. You, that's a, just a basic protocol in any Especially sort of... Especially if you're talking about a potential life form that could be hazardous. It could infect the entire planet, right? Yeah, the, the, the sort of the scientific reaction to, to a lot of this stuff is these guys are incredibly cavalier and careless. Okay. Um, and, and that goes, you know, you're, when you do this in real life, you're probably not so much concerned about something, you know, growing uh, suddenly and breaking out of containment and eating your face as much as you're concerned about killing it accidentally by doing something stupid. Um, But you're still going to proceed very cautiously. And there was no caution. These guys were just reckless as as all get out. Uh, I'm reminded real fast of uh, a a book that I read a while back about, about as an astronaut's Autobiography. It was Mike Mullane's book called Riding Rockets. Have you ever read this book? No, I haven't read that. Uh, Mike Mullane was a, an astronaut in the 1980s, and he had a, a real, just the opening chapter alone. He, he talks about how hard it is to become an astronaut. And one of the things that he mentions in it is uh, he talks about getting like a colonoscopy and having to do an enema in order to have them look up his ass. And so he takes this enema and... He says, you know what? I'm not going to take just one. I'm going to do it three times. And he's talking to some of the other people, and they're like, dude, you just had to do one enema. And he goes, 
I'm going to make sure that when the doctor looks at my ass, he's going to see the rays of God coming out of my sparkling asshole. It's going to be so clean. And he does three of them, and he sits there, he's holding it as long as he can, and it's this very funny, you know, opening chapter. And he finally, you know, does his, his enema, and he gets his colonoscopy, it all comes back clean, and he says, the other people who just did one, they didn't make the cut. And he's saying, I did. Now, I don't know if it was the, uh, the enema, but that's the kind of attitude that you have to take in order to become a, a NASA astronaut. These guys are not up there just willy-nilly going, I'm going to go in a space boot and, and hop outside the spacecraft. I know that's not regulations. And Jake Gyllenhaal has a line where he says, we didn't train for this. There's no way. There's, they're doing anything they didn't train for. You, you, have it, you have it dead on. You know, astronauts are incredibly prepared, they are incredibly detail-oriented, and they are incredibly competitive with, mm-hmm. with each other. So they really, they really, really push the bounds on, on what humans can do. I mean, they're, they're very impressive people, no question. Now, one of the things that I didn't like when the alien first shows its true colors, mm-hmm. you know, when it, it grabs the biologist's hand, mm-hmm. right, and it's, it's crushing his hand, well... I'm thinking, dude, you have another hand free. Why do you not have the, the button that you can push on this chamber that is in space, by the way, you're just separated by a thin wall from vacuum that opens that thing up to vacuum and shoots that nasty little bugger out? Right outside, yeah. I mean, why, why wouldn't you take that precaution? You have the environment there, and even if it's you know not just open to space, but, but you literally just evacuate sort of- the chamber or... Or have some way of, of, of you know, literally flamethrowers built in the wall to purge it of any biological contamination. I, I, I know why they didn't do that. The movie would be 11 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, you, you know, yes, you have to have the circumstances all occur. Instead, I'll just take this little <laughs> cattle prod and, and shock it. I'll touch it with yeah. a shocker. Yeah, I'll just touch it with a shocker and really make it mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, the, 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 done for dramatic effect, okay, I get it. Right. But, but the fact is that when scientists are working in a lab environment, they're going to follow very careful procedures. Uh, they're, they're not going to just, you know, have a random idea and, and do something like these guys did. Because that's when bad things happen. Mm-hmm. What else? It looks okay. like there were, there were some other issues that were coming up that I could see you. Yeah, I could yeah. visually see you in the theater reacting to it. I love it. Okay, one, one thing if we go back to the, the way astronauts act. You know what? Astronauts in that situation, they will not cry. They will not mourn their comrades. You know why? Because they know that they're, the only way they're going to survive is absolutely focusing on the situation at hand. Mm. They are on a mission. They are, it's, it's very much like soldiers. I mean, you know, really, really well, really, really well-trained soldiers who are experienced in combat. These guys do not panic. In fact, that, that was one of the things about the movie Gravity, mm-hmm. which just really upset me. You know, the, when Sandra Bullock is, is sitting there curled up in a ball and sobbing, and she's supposedly this really hot-shot astronaut? No. No, 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 no. Uh, those, these are people who seek out incredibly stressful situations and so that they can shine. ride right through them. Yeah. yeah. They're like, well, that's why they chose to test pilots in part, right. you know, when they, when they started the astronaut program. Because they had 
the right stuff. Right. They had the right psychological stuff to be put under extremely stressful conditions where death is potentially imminent at any moment, and they don't panic. They just keep thinking. They just keep working all of the contingencies they can. And, and you know, you saw that in the movie, the reason these guys uh, couldn't beat this creature is because they, they couldn't figure out a strategy. Mm-hmm. When they had a space station where they should have been able to lock off one particular part and, and stay warm and breathing and safe and evacuated the whole thing and let that dang thing die. Yeah. But, but again... The, but the again, mo- the no, no movie. Right? Yeah, the yeah. movie's 11 minutes long. <laughs> I, I think you're right. It, I, it, one of the things that we see a lot of movies, we've, we've even talked about it on this podcast, is these like superhero characters that come out. But this is as close to a superhero as we have, is an, a, an astronaut, right? I, I can't imagine too many other people who are, I mean, mentally and physically and emotionally fit you know, just all wrapped up into one little bundle, right? I, I think there are, there are some others, but yeah, these these guys are uh, they near the be top up there. of the pyramid, no question. I mean, in terms of intelligence as well, I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure Commando, uh, I mean, they've, they've got a strategy for uh, military combat, but these guys are just so well-trained in, in so many different facets. Yeah, the, these men and women, well, now, you know, many of them, I think most of them actually have PhDs. Right. So they they are not just academically... They're not just physically disciplined, but academically disciplined. They're they're very very hardworking, and, and like I said, they're they're very detail oriented, and they don't crack under stress. And those yeah. are those are all important characteristics. Even that scene with Jake, it was the children's book. Mm-hmm. The children, and normally I like that kind of texturing. Good night, moon. When they yes. read the, the story, yeah, okay. yeah. And I normally like that kind of texturing. We can get a little bit of motivation and understand the character. I thought that was a bit heavy handed. Mm. I thought that was some, it didn't work for me. And I understand why it was in the script, so we can get a handle on this character and there'd be a more dramatic payoff. But I felt it was forced and heavy-handed. And with what you're saying, it's not even accurate. Yeah. That a, a true person in space wouldn't be, you know... Well, there's something quote that, that you bring up, and it's something that I was kind of wondering, because I've, I've studied a little bit of, uh, of astronomy and, and physics, and, and I find it it's kind of a... a as I mentioned to Dwayne earlier, kind of an armchair hobby of mine. But I'm curious about just having that stuff in space, uh, the weight of taking a book into space. Like, the astronauts presented... So one of the astronauts has a baby, and the other astronauts present this book of, like, Goodnight Moon, and here you can read this book. I can't imagine that they would actually bring a book into space. It would be a file that someone would send, and then you'd read it on an iPad, right? I mean... Well, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of bringing a physical book up onto the ISS to give to the dad of a, of a daughter who he's just had born on Earth, that doesn't make sense because, you know, she's supposed to be the recipient of the right. gift, right? I, they, would, they would do that calculation and say, no, it's not worth it. Now, we can bring a lot of stuff up to the ISS these days, you know, really? because they have regular cargo resupplies. Okay. Uh, and and it's, it, is, it is every gram counts, and they very carefully figure out what they need up there and what they don't. But... But it's not quite as uh, as difficult as it was in the earlier days of, okay. of spaceflight. And then what about now? Here's the other catch that I had: when this or this Calvin life form breaks out, Ryan Reynolds is chasing it around the room with a flamethrower. Is that even couldn't would NASA or is it NASA that's in charge of ISS? 
Yes. Okay, so yes. would NASA ever permit anything that would allow it to be turned into a flamethrower? No. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Because one of the biggest risks you have in spaceflight, because you tend to run fairly oxygen-rich atmospheres, is fire. Right. Um, we, we lost three astronauts, the Apollo 1 accident, right. on the pad... And the reason that they died was in part because the, the, the uh, environment in the capsule was extremely oxygen-rich, so the fire just was, spread everywhere, was right? so fast, yes, and very hot. Uh, so the, one of the worst things that could happen on the space station would be a fire. There is no way you would be running around with a flamethrower uh, trying to trying to kill something like that. That's just that's that's madness because you're just as likely to die from that as the alien killing you at that point. Do you feel like uh, at what point does the writer just take free license? Wouldn't you think that the writer would sit down with someone to to have that discussion? Well, I I think it boils down to what is cinematic and exciting storytelling mm. as opposed to what's scientifically accurate. And we've seen this happen time and time again in many movies, not just science fiction movies, but uh, where it's not accurate and they know it, but it makes for a it makes for a cool scene. It's a cool visual, right? It's, it's a visual. Chasing the same yes, but I I mean I think we could get around it. I think we could have other cool visuals. I actually thought the movie was shot very very beautifully. Yes, I thought there were some really nice this. moments. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's a there's a shot early on when they. They take it. They're they're looking down at Earth, uh-huh. and they have the parts of the station in view as well. And that was just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are obviously some incredibly gorgeous pictures they've taken from ISS. They did a really nice job with that. And the ISS simulation that uh-huh. they had in the movie was also absolutely gorgeous. So I think visually, they, it was, they weren't it was suffering stunning. visually. No. So no. I don't think they needed, and I don't think they even needed the action. I think it could have been. I think they could have let go of some of the action and actually had a little bit more um, a character-based, just a, a problematic situation on I, ISS. Like, how do we deal with this problem? And it didn't necessarily need to turn into a monster movie. It could have turned more into just like, how do we deal with this problem of, of contamination in general? Mm-hmm. I, so, you know, I think the, mo- the monster movie is always cool because it's the bad evil creature and it's got all these powers and it can do all these things and it's, so it's really a difficult foe I would have liked to see some more ingenuity on the part of, of these guys who were NASA engineers and scientists right. actually no they were international there was a Japanese there was a Japanese uh, astronaut the Two commander Brits. was was British was one of them Russian yes I yeah the, the oh, the commander was Russian. Russian. The the doctor was right. British right and then the the, the biologist was British and there were two Americans yeah so you had this very... So was it six people? Wait, was it six people? Look, you got the... Maybe it was six people. Wait, are you... the? Okay, the commander, was she Russian? Yeah, there were six. There yes. were six people. Okay. Yes. I well, said there were five. Right? Calvin, then that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like the name Calvin. But I, yeah, I did okay. think that was, yeah, that's probably the most realistic part of the movie for me was, was turning to a bunch of grade school children in Times Square going, we named this thing... Calvin, <laughs> I like that scene a lot. <laughs> to me, it just—it would seem very real. Like that's how they would yeah, do it. Like, are we going to have a bunch of grade school kids do this? You know, if we are—we're talking about the cinematography a moment ago. It's a gorgeous film, and I think it's one of these examples where the execution of the film is better than the actual storyline. Mm-hmm. And um, it was gorgeous cinematography. That opening shot, 
whether, I don't know if the technical word of tracking or panning, but it was a continuous shot that went on for many, many minutes. Now, I've learned, we've learned that ever since like Birdman, they can make it look like it's all one shot, but with CGI, it's really not. But it gave that illusion, and it went on for a very long time, introducing us to the main character, to the yeah. space station. It was an incredible opening. Yeah. I, you know, and I will give them kudos for really thinking seriously about the fact that they're supposed to be in zero G, and they were... They were clearly doing a really a pretty good job of having people fly around and trying to deal with the fact that, you know, you don't just stop on a dime. You mm -hmm. have to actually break yourself and, and slow down. Um, some of the changes in direction were a little wonky, but, you know, I, they're filming in gravity. They can't, they can't sure. perfectly simulate it. They really did make a very honest attempt to do that. That was pretty good. The foot stirrups underneath the main console, little things like that that I thought were really nice additions to the, yeah. the, that element of what you're talking about. Absolutely. So let me talk about the, the one thing that, in addition to what I've talked about that is, I think, the, the really fatal flaw in the physics of this movie. I can't and wait. And that's I when you this. get to orbital dynamics. Of and course, we start, all know Orbital. I, I was going to say that. <laughs> I, I how mean, often do we just sit down at dinner like, hey, let's talk Orbital <laughs> Dynamics for a minute? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, you know, space flight nerd, what can I say? <laughs> um, here's the thing. The ISS is in orbit around Earth, right. and it's a great big thing. It takes a lot of propellant and a lot of thrusting to move it out of that orbit, and it would take even more to actually deorbit it. In fact, I would be surprised if it actually has enough on board to deorbit uh, to actually cause it to deorbit and and go, you know, fall into into the atmosphere of Earth. I, that was the moment. I, it was it was when they uh, a couple times the ISIS ISIS. Listen to me, ISS. I see. I told I told you it's gonna be three times. There was one. <laughs> Now, there's gonna, there were a few times when um, the ISS starts to fall out of orbit, then it gets back into its place, and then it comes, it gets knocked back out again. When that happened in the movie, a Dwayne's, did you see it, Ira? Dwayne's whole yeah. body just yeah. slumped. Yeah. He started yeah. throwing up his hands. Yeah. I can, yeah. I I can feel his eye roll, and I was yeah. like, I know it has something to do with this orbit. I don't know exactly <laughs> what it is, but I, I knew you were upset, and I loved it. I was going, yes, this is going to be a great podcast. Yeah, I, I basically at that point I said, they're just doing major violence to the to the whole science of, of deep space navigation mm. I, I, and orbital dynamics. Um, you know, the, the, there, was, there was that. There, there was the idea of, you know, we're going to take these escape pods and we're going we're gonna to send them out into deep space. Are no. there escape pods on ISS? No, there are not. Oh, really? The, they, li the they lifeboats? Have, they don't they, have lifeboats? They, they do have a lifeboat now, but it's not really an escape pod. It is... It is simply when they send up a, a vessel, there is a vessel there that can take them down as well. But in general, no, they don't have a, a life pod that they can... They don't have two life, life rafts they're, for they're, one person, even yeah, though it's yeah. a six-person crew. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and you, either, you either get everybody off or you don't. So uh, <laughs> this, this is space flight, folks, in, in the 21st century. This is the best we can do. You know, and they've, they've done really well. With this, I mean, we we uh, we haven't lost uh, anybody on the ISS, um, but it's a very, very, very dangerous environment, and it is not at all uh, it, it's not at all tolerant of any sort of human errors or mistakes. Um, uh, I want to so, ask you, go ahead, real go fast, ahead. about the oxygen candles. 
what is that? Are those real or is that a, a fi- that, th- these characters would uh, switch they, on a little just for, for the podcast listeners? The, the characters would switch on a little um, almost looks like a flashlight. It would light up and I guess emit oxygen. So I, I assume those are some sort of a chemical reaction that is releasing oxygen. Um, I, I don't know if those are a real thing or not. Mm. Um, it would kind of make sense. The way they were using them was a little weird, but to to breathe extra oxygen. Well, you just wouldn't if you're you're in a big space, right? Where where you're running out of oxygen, what you probably wouldn't do is light up this candle and then just let it you know float freely expand into that space because what you really need to do is get it into your lungs. Right. Um, oxygen deprivation is a really really difficult thing, and it's kind of like a switch. It's like acute, uh, if, right? It's if like, you if you get to the point where your body it doesn't get enough oxygen, it shuts you down, mm. and you you uh, lose cognitive function, you become unconscious very quickly. Uh, it's it's a big risk for pilots. I so. got to imagine too that even if those do exist for NASA, they probably aren't in some sort of glass case that Ryan Reynolds can quickly bust and then uh, turn into some sort of. Do you remember this? He breaks yeah. the glass on the. Come on. Is there even anything glass on ISS, do you think? Well, there may be glass, but it's designed not to break. Not to break, right? You, you know, you do, certainly couldn't whack it with your elbow and break it because, you know, bad things would happen. Right. Yeah. yeah. What you were you going to say? As, as a scientist, this is an irresponsible film, if I can label it that, and does not frustrate you. Um, you know, it's for entertainment, okay? People should not be thinking of these as the authoritative source for how the universe works. They are supposed to be fantasies. They're a, you know, escape from real life. Um, I, I, I was, here's, here's the one thing that did bother me um, really and truly about this, uh, though, in terms of ISS, and that was the idea that these guys could be out of contact with Earth. Let me tell you how ISS actually works. There is mission control in Houston for right. the ISS. There is a backup control center in, um, in Alabama that is also available. There are multiple other subsidiary control centers all over the globe. Most of what the ISS does is still today controlled on the ground. The astronauts who are up hmm. there, their time is spent in maintaining themselves because that's a serious job when mm-hmm. you're on orbit and at in zero gravity, and doing the scientific experiments and other kind of experiments that they have to do. They only are doing the things to maintain the station that are absolutely necessary that could not be done from the ground. Mm. So they are in constant contact with people on the ground. And I don't know very much about their telemetry system, but I guarantee you they have backups on backups. An alien would not just be able to slurp up the the coolant fluid like mm-hmm. it supposedly did and caused the transmitter to fail and then they couldn't talk to Earth. No way. Uh, They're not even that far from Earth, They are right? very close to Earth. They are, they are only d- a couple hundred kilometers They could shoot some lasers and use Morse code if they needed to. Sh- certainly, there's got to be some sort of like... Well, I don't, I don't know all of the, the telemetry systems that, that they have, but I can guarantee you that there is a very, very low probability of all of those systems failing and leaving them unable to speak to the Earth. Hmm. Because it's not that... Isn't it true that if the conditions are right, we can actually see the space station here on Earth? If the conditions are right, we can physically see it in the sky. Mm -hmm. It's not that far up. Right. And we would would find a way to communicate with them uh, in in short order. Or they would rig up a transmitter, I swear to God. they, They would do that. 
uh, if if the worst case came, because you know we're talking about the first life other than on Earth discovered in the you know in, in our entire history. Uh, yeah, let's just the have eyes them of the world would be on them. The <laughs> they would be making regular reports, and these guys are up there cowboying it. Right? Nah, nah, not gonna happen. I can't imagine that NASA would send a bunch of cowboys up to do that mission. And in general, they wouldn't send them up, but especially for that mission. I mean, that's got to be handled with the utmost care and and and, and total concern for contamination. Right, right. So if there's if there's something that you know, I would want to make sure people were more aware of is that the doing doing space flight, uh, being in space uh, with astronauts in particular, is a huge team endeavor. It is, it is many, many people all having to do their jobs the right way to make this all happen. And I realize that's, you know, that's hard to, to see. We see the astronauts and we think, oh, the astronauts are so cool and they do it all. Um, but there are many people who work on the infrastructure of the ground systems and the telecommunication systems and the planning systems and who monitor all of the various uh, things on board the space station and keep it running every day. Um, they are they are doing a huge amount of work for everyone. That's that's where our tax dollars are going is to those people who are who are making all this stuff work. Yeah, and it's a huge team effort. No, I have a question for you. So we've talked a lot about how movies really need to listen to NASA, but is there a certain element of where NASA really listens to the movie industry? In other words, like looking at films like this and then saying, okay, shit, we never want something like that to happen. So how does the film industry influence NASA from your perspective? Can you think of any instances where maybe science fiction comes out and, and then NASA starts to say, hey, what if this scenario did happen? How would we handle that and start to adjust real-world applications because of the film industry? I, I don't think it happens in, in, in an organized way, but, but let's face it, engineers go to movies, right? Right. And we have a lot of young creative engineers and they go to movies and they see this stuff and they think, wow, that's really cool. So I can tell you one place where it, where it definitely has impacted us is in all the, the CGI and the, the, the computer animation capabilities mm. because we now routinely do these uh, kind of, sometimes they're just sort of promotional, uh, you know, that, that represent a spacecraft or a rover on Mars because we want people to understand what we're doing. But the other aspect of it is when you create a, a simulation like that, you can use it to try to understand how your scientific experiment, how your rover is going to work, or when you're building a spacecraft, how the pieces fit together, or if you have parts that deploy or are a robot arm. You want to look at, you know, that if it doesn't I move break this off arm, when it, it catches. Yeah, so it doesn't break <laughs> off when it catches a spacecraft, rogue spacecraft going by. But more importantly, so it doesn't go and whack your solar panel and damage it, right? right when you're, you know that it can't do that. Uh, so those capabilities NASA has embraced and we, we use all the time. Um, I think in terms of biological contamination stories, you know, we've had those forever. So, so the people who do that kind of work, you know, they, they are paid to be paranoid, if you will, about that. I'm sure many of them have seen, if not this movie, they will see other movies, they will read books that make them think, you know, the Andromeda strain, sure. for example. Um, they will think about these things, and they will be thinking about, how do I keep that happening? How do I keep us from having a really, really bad day? I do have one specific example about how a science fiction film affected 
real-life science community. Uh, Destination Moon, hmm. George Powell, one of the first movies to show an actual... They, in that science fiction film, five, four, three, two, one, liftoff. They went 10 to 1 backwards, mm-hmm. and in the real life, they mirrored that in the scientific community for actual launches, got that idea from the film. They didn't do that beforehand? Well, well the way before, like before, well, being serious. Before, yeah, uh, Robert, what movie? That, what year did that movie come I, out? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, oh, Destination Moon. Uh, there what were no launches. What year is that? Destination Moon. We have to go uh, roughly. To Give me yeah, a decade. Nineteen forties. Oh, okay. 40s. Oh, I thought you were being I, no, funny I didn't, when you said that. I don't know the that. film. Yeah, it's a very, very early George Powell I mean, I was movie. being funny. <laughs> yeah, he's taking credit now for being funny. It was a George Powell movie, and it was just showed in okay. black and white, and that's where they got the idea to count down from. I guess uh, what I'm surprised about is that there wouldn't be some sort of missile launch or something like that. I would think... No, I think the movie actually predates even, even the, missile the German missile program, which was really the start of the space program for the world. Wow, okay. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. The, Thank the, you. The first rockets were von Braun right. in World War II. Right. Um, and we brought him here, and he was a key figure in, in getting all that in started. In the Apollo program. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks, Nazis. Great. <laughs> um, we've talked a lot about the scientific accuracy. I want to get back to the cinematic accuracy. Right. So we talked about the, the visuals. I thought it was stunning. Were there some other elements of this movie that we want to address any of the acting or any, any of the other elements? Either one of you guys. You know, the, so the, I thought the, the narrative flow was fairly good through most of it. But there was one part that really puzzled me. And that was when, uh, okay, so they, they send the, the, the spacecraft up from Earth. And it's now going to push the space station out into deep space. Right. And, and they're all going to die, right? And so it's, it's coupled to the space station, and it's thrusting away. And the, the Japanese astronaut has, maybe he thinks they're being rescued. It's not clear totally what he's thinking. But he, he rushes down there, and he's trying to open the hatch to that. And at some point, the alien follows him and attacks him. And, but I didn't, I didn't understand what happened. You know, it was sort of very, it was like a jump cut. I, I didn't understand what propelled him to run. To get out of his... I think they said, he thinks it's a rescue. He thought it was a rescue, so he wanted to make sure he was included in the rescue. And I'm telling you, just from having done enough films, I can, I'll can. i bet you a dollar that that wasn't in the original script, and they probably showed it to people, and they were like, why did that guy do what he was doing? And they were like, let's throw a line of dialogue where Jake Gyllenhaal says, he thinks they're being rescued, something, because it, it wasn't real clear. We even see his finger about to push the open up button, yeah, and then yeah. he pauses. He doesn't do that. Right, and the next later, thing we know, does, the alien is attacking him. Right, 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 yeah. right. Goes right to. Uh, yeah, I thinking? was confused on that on that beat. So, so then. So we all hate Japanese people too, right? <laughs> I mean, I just want to make sure that we're all clear on that. We hate. I was rooting for him. But, you know, You're rooting I, for the Germans, uh, and you hate Japanese. I see where no. this podcast is clearly going. Yeah. So the other thing that, of course, happened during that is there's, you know, uncoupling going on because of all right. the stresses or something. Which, come on, is that even possible? Is there any way to uncouple a t- two ships once they've been joined together like uh, that? Well, there could be, but if, it, if that were happening, the people in that capsule, the three who were in there, yeah. along with... In that room? With, yeah, they're with they're the space dust, right? They're dead. They're dead. They, there's no atmosphere left. It's, it, it, it is going to evacuate much more quickly. This is a common science fiction movie thing, though. They show the, the wind blowing, you know, and, and the people are bravely hanging on. No, they're not that strong. 
if if you because people get sucked out of airplanes, yeah. right? I mean, this is not th- that's still within our atmosphere. Okay, we're talking about a complete vacuum and something close to an Earth's atmosphere worth of pressure. Guess what? They're gone. Even if the hole is smaller than they are, they're going to be made small enough to go through the Spaghettification, hole. Spaghettification, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. All right. So, I mean, it looked like you had something else you wanted to say yeah, about Yeah, I the- guess talking about the actual the, the movie mm-hmm. uh, itself, and with we should mention that it was the same two writers who did Deadpool, and some people were surprised there wasn't more humor in the film. Now there was humor in the first act. Right, uh, there was some playful barbs back and forth, and um, it's interesting. By the way, as far as the actors, Jake, Jake, how do we say his name? Like, Gyllenhaal. Gyllen, Jake Gyllenhaal. What did, I mean with nocturnal animals and night crawlers and now you almost this, said nocturnal emissions I know, again i know that was from an earlier podcast we referred to as nocturnal emission aren't you glad you're here with us <laughs> i'm feeling a little uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> can we please keep it to science you guys <laughs> you know what's interesting my my looking back at the entire film um my favorite part of the movie was the first act hmm. the setup the setup, yeah. and I, I think you even saw me tense up. Where, but you saw me tense that one moment where I thought it was the best executed of the entire film. Uh, the first act, the first half hour of the film, I thought. I'll tell you the two parts that I really liked about this movie, uh, and I guess maybe this is my first money shot. Ryan Reynolds' death scene. I don't know why, but it it tickled me. It was like it was so gross and overdone, and his blood is going everywhere. This alien is crawling in his mouth. I got the heebie-jeebies a little bit. I was definitely kind of like squirming in my seat, going because the idea of an alien crawling down my throat is just not how I want to go out. Um, so that one definitely stuck out in my mind. Yeah, and they did. It was extended. Yeah. Yeah. They did not cut away from no, it. No. And I like that. I like that they were like, no, we're not going to spare you. <laughs> we're we're going to show you. you out, yeah. yeah. And, um, and the other thing I really, really liked, I liked the ending. So I guess we should do a spoiler alert, but I really? liked it. I love, I love downer endings. I love where it's like, guess what? We're all fucked. <laughs> and I love that. The, the ending of the film, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal tries to uh, get the get Calvin, our alien, onto his little escape pod and send it out to deep space. While the other astronaut, the um, the only what, what, what country was, was this? The Russian girl? Where was she from? Was this our seventh astronaut? I don't, I don't remember. Maybe the seventh astronaut. I don't know. The other, there was another astronaut who was also kind of surviving, and she's going to uh, return back to, to Earth. And as they're trying to do this, as they're as they're they're jettisoning themselves out from, uh, I almost said ISIS again. I think that's two. That counts as two because I almost yeah, said ISIS. Yeah. As they're jetting themselves out from ISS, they... Uh, uh, she gets hit by some debris and she goes spinning off into space and she can't seem to control her uh, her life raft. And meanwhile, Jake Gyllenhaal, who was trying to go into outer space with Calvin and, and send it out away from everyone, uh, the, the alien takes control of his hand and starts gripping it in a way that he loses control of the ship and he winds up plummeting towards Earth. I love that the, the idea of where they're trying to go was completely opposite. Jake Gyllenhaal winds up landing on Earth. All these fishermen come rushing over to try to save his uh, his his character. Oh, by the way, this object that falls out of space lands in the ocean, just burning hot, and these fishermen are now cl- crawling all over it. Yeah, they touched it so <clears throat> soon. Yeah, thought, it, yeah, it was still glowing yeah, yeah, practically. Yeah. And then uh, and then meanwhile, the the thing I loved most about the ending is they cut back to her in outer space, screaming just like no. And, 
I love that. It was total needlessly, I didn't need to cut back to it, but I love that they're like, by the way, just in case you thought that she might be returning to Earth. No, she's fucked. She's going off. She's spinning into space and she's pissed. Um, and I just thought that was fun. I loved it. All hope is gone. Yeah, I think that's fun. I love that in movies. I think that speaks more about you than the film. <laughs> um, as we exited the movie from the theater, there was a... Yes. There was a gentleman who was yes. stayed after the credits as well, and he, he said something. What did he say? I, I love what he said. Is older man, yeah. a few years older than I am. And he said, if this movie were made in the 1970s, it would have had the other ending. Yeah. And I think he's right. Yeah. He's right. It would have had the happy ending. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you even asked the question after the, after the movie was over, do you think they shot two endings? Yeah. I wonder. I, I tell wonder. you what, I don't think they did. And I'll tell you why. If I was the director, I wouldn't risk having a studio use the happy ending. If I want the downer ending, I never shoot it. Uh, I never shoot the happy ending. Because if you do, then someone's going to say, you know, the happy ending is testing better, and somebody's going to talk you out of it. Getting back to this gentleman's comment about how if the movie were made in the 70s, it would have had the more upbeat, happy ending. Um, do you think the fact that it ended this way reflects our society? Is it a metaphor for the, what's going on out there and how people, the, the tone of what's happening? If so, I mean, what's, it's a metaphor for what? For, I want to pronounce, Malay, Malays? Mm-hmm. Is that the Malays? Mm-hmm. Malay? Yeah, just a general <sighs> ho-hum. Mm. I suspect it's really just, why just, do we always have to Just end, a twist. Yeah, just like, screw it. Let's just have a different kind of ending. I think it could be a, a pessimistic. That. That's the word I'm looking for. That perhaps it does reflect a pessimistic attitude out there in the real world. Well, you mm. know, you could think of it in terms of like climate change, where we are we are concerned about you know actually really truly damaging the the climate of of, of our our planet. We don't have an alternative, mm-hmm. and we don't actually really know how we're going to stop it. Uh, at this point, or if it's going to stop on its own or any of those things. And, you know, we're working very hard to try to understand it. I think it's a little scary that there's, you know, some elements of the political spectrum that think we shouldn't even look at it and we should just spend our money on other things because I think it's foolish to turn your back on the possibility that that we are damaging it beyond repair. Mm -hmm. Um, We are certainly going to live with some consequences of it and they're going to be very expensive. Um, but, but I think there, there is that note of, do we really understand what's going on and are there things we should be doing we, that we could be doing that we are not doing just out of ignorance at this point? So do you feel like the alien represents that, that mother nature coming that, back to that, take over? Yeah. It's that. It's Reclaiming? That, it's the fact that um, nature isn't just all, you know, warm and cuddly and, and gives you hugs and nice green grass to sit on. Sometimes nature can kill you. And we need to understand both of those facets of it. I'll tell you what, humans will fuck that up, too. (laughs) Um, Well, there's a happy thought. (laughs) (laughs) What about other money shots? Did you guys have any shots that stuck out to you? Well, you know, one that I really did like. uh, it It was totally not what would really happen, but I really liked... The, the scene where the, the alien is just starting to grow and it first kind of shows its little tendrils mm-hmm. and then a little bit later it sends up like this one little shoot and it's tracking the guy's finger mm-hmm. and just following it. And that was, 
it was gorgeous. It was beautifully done. It was it was sort of compelling because it's one of those sort of fascinating things. You're just going to sit and watch and go, that's really cool. Yeah. Agreed. I had the same money shot. I've said this before in previous podcasts that often the money shot tends to be at or near the end of a film mm-hmm. by definition of what a money shot is, I think. However, mine again is in act one and the same, the same exact wow. scene. It was um, poetic. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a poetic moment. So funny that both of you chose money shots that really deal with like life connecting yes. with life. And meanwhile, I choose Ryan Reynolds' death scene. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that speaks not so much to the film. It speaks more about His who we are. His blood squirting everywhere. <laughs> Which, by the way, what happened to all that blood? There was so much blood in this spaceship, and then it just disappeared after a while. I don't know if you noticed that. I think that. the alien was sucking it up. Is that what was going there, on? There was one scene where he was sort of following a trail of, of blood, blood right? Yeah, because he was starved for, uh, for nutrients. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I'll take that. All right, so... Uh, one other question. Do you think if NASA had had figured out, let's let's say that all the communication problems that happened and everything, and, and NASA suspected that the ISS space station had just been taken over with this, uh, with, with this alien life form, wouldn't they just nuke the whole ISS station before they would ever even chance letting it come back to Earth? Oh, I feel like they would. You know, honestly, this is, that's a really hard question. And let me tell you a couple reasons why. One thing is, if you took the ISS and blew it to little pieces, you would create, first of all, you would probably destroy a huge number of other satellites that are in Earth orbit. Hmm. Because that debris cloud becomes essentially a set of projectiles. Okay. And so you're going to be knocking out communication and scientific satellites in low Earth orbit probably for the next several years. It's got to be worth that. Um, now, you know, we're talking about keeping the Earth from being destroyed, so, you know, it's probably worth that. Um, setting off a nuclear bomb in low Earth orbit, wow. Uh, that, it is, the, the difference that that would be between that and an act of war is so small. Hmm. Um, I think it's very possible, depending on exactly what they use, the EMP from that bomb might knock out electronics and power grids all over the planet. So you'd have those effects to deal with. This is, we're talking about a situation that has no clean solution, honestly. Sounds like a sequel. <laughs> Ira, start writing. Um, I, I still kind of wonder about a life form that can actually live for extended periods of time in vacuum. A carbon-based life form at that. Uh, yeah, it seemed to be carbon-based. That's what they was, said. They said they it was carbon-based. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a little hard to understand. Um, between vacuum and ionizing radiation in outer space, it's really a nasty place. So uh, your best bet would be to have it in a, in a, isolated in a module that you could decouple from the space station. Mm. And then if you had to, you know, take Jettison that thing that. And, and, and tow it into, into deep space. Yeah. Halfway through the film, I thought, well, this house is going to be resolved. I thought that all the crew members were simply going to uh, realize that they are indeed doomed and they can't let this find its way to Earth. They'd all hold hands. They'd sing Kumbaya. <laughs> and, and the ship would slowly sail into the unknown or the sun. Or so it would just, and that would be the right. end of the... I, that would, 
The other thing, too, there was a double cross in this where they're like, oh, there's firewall number two, which is the lab and firewall or firewall number one and two. And the third firewall is the space station. So the space station should go into, into orbit. But they didn't seem to tell all of the crew members this. There had to be a double cross from the man. Right. I mean, is that would that ever even happen that they would send someone into space yeah. and not make perfectly clear What's going on that, hey, you're running a real risk here by being up. You may not come back. Well, let me, let me tell you why they would do that. Because they would be depending on those people to execute the necessary actions right. to make those firewalls work. Yeah, the firewalls weren't very well explained or explored. Um, but, but in reality, if you are sending people on a mission where there's, there's, there's actions that they need to take in order to keep everybody else safe, you have to be up front with them. I mean, there's no other way because you're depending on them to do it. Do take those actions, you know, fire the thrusters to send this into deep space. Well, they they if they don't know, how can they how can they execute the right actions? I got to imagine, too, like I, I, I can't speak for either of you, too, but I know if I'm in I almost said ISIS again, if I'm in ISS and I am and dealing with a life form and I'm one of six people that is dealing with this. I'm, I'm saying vocally, guys, we need, we're going to have to die here. Sorry, but we cannot risk this thing getting back to Earth. And I'm sorry to say it, but we got to go into space and we got we to get this thing out of here. And, you know, that could have been a very interesting conversation. Right. Uh, but that's probably a different movie. <laughs> but I, and that's what I'm saying. I think that could have been a more interesting yes, film. Yes, that would have been character story, character yeah. driven. Right. And I, I wasn't, even though I said they'd all sing Kumbaya, I was being funny. No, I know. But I thought, and this was halfway through the film. I thought that they're going to have to do that. Look at one another, and they all get it at the same moment. And unanimously, maybe it wouldn't be unanimous. Right. Maybe it'd be better storytelling if it wasn't unanimous. Or what if it is unanimous, but there's problems along the way with, you know, with this alien that starts kind of messing things up for them, and they're trying to do the right thing, and they can't. You know, that could be interesting, too. I, I, I hate that there's always one person who's like, no, I don't want to do that. Right. I, I think that speaks to, um, like, I, that's my problem in every zombie movie. There's always someone who doesn't want to cooperate with what the group is doing. And I feel like in zombie movies, if, if there was a zombie apocalypse right now, I feel like the three of us would suddenly get along real, real well. We'd be like, you know what? Let's figure this out. Let's come up with a game plan. We're all tight. We're reasonable people. Let's solve this situation. But uh, And I feel like that's a... a a common trope that I see in a lot of these kind of films is there's always one person who, no, guys, I disagree. And I, okay, sorry, then let's put you in the life raft and get you out of here so the rest of us can do what's right. I, I think the more interesting one would be there's there's disagreement. Maybe it's one or maybe it's two people, and, and there's actually two factions, but then they, I don't know, work it through? Right. Instead of somebody having to die or blow up or something like and that. And now you've got a character-driven story, right. a more compelling story. Than what we saw. But one thing that I did think <clears throat> that was really interesting about the director of the film is that he didn't seem to focus so much on the star power of the actors. It didn't seem obsessed with Jake Gyllenhaal or Ryan Reynolds. And I think he really did a nice job of balancing out a lot of the actors. And I have to say, that was some really nice direction mm-hmm. of, um, of and screen time that it wasn't trying to just focus on, on the star power of, of the actors that you've got. I thought that was an, an interesting element. Yeah. I know that if, I, if I'm making a movie with two of the hottest actors in Hollywood right now, you're giving them a ton of screen time, and you're just saying, look at their faces, look at their faces, look at their faces. And that's not what was going on here. It really was about the crew, I felt. Yeah. 
And 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 the, a lot of the other characters did get fleshed out a little bit. You did start to see some backstory behind them. You did get some motivation behind them. I still feel like the the alien became too much of the the central focus, and I think it could have been more about the crew of like the, how do they work together to get out of a problem as as opposed to just being picked off like a a, a horror movie. Right. 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 But that's what it was. Hmm. Anything else you guys want to add about the movie? Okay, let me just add one more scientific implausibility. Please. Okay, this is this is when the commander is out there trying to fix the transmitter. And she's going to open up the, uh, a valve to the coolant. Well, she opens the valve. She's in vacuum. If there were any coolant there, you know what would happen to that valve? Get sucked right it, out. It, it'd become a projectile. She'd yeah. have lost her hand. Uh, and, and all the com- coolant would have been spewing out, and they would have lost it anyway. So that was... That was just that didn't make any sense. That so was wait, there really aren't, just a vehicle to get the alien out there. And there aren't her. screws outside that just are are connected to all the coolant in the whole ISS <laughs> that you you have Surpri- to put on a spaceship to or yeah. spacesuit to go yeah. out. On. Surprisingly, no. Yeah, oh wow, that's, that's not really the the thing they want to do. What kind of shit design would that have been? Uh, <laughs> Who would have been fired at NASA? Like Fred, why the hell did you design this that way? See, that's one of those things that there there'd be a. There'd be a junior engineer who was working on this, and he had this great solution because it saved a bunch of mass or something like that. And and the senior engineer would come in one day and look at his plans or his drawings and would say, "Um, let's have a little talk about this. (laughs) Let's remember where we are. We're in in low Earth orbit, and what is outside of this, this, this pipe valve? And it would be a teachable moment for that young engineer. Teachable moment. Teachable moment, yeah. But it would be caught in the design phase. Sure. Very early. Right. <laughs> you would never build it. Anything else you want to add, Ira? Could you Google Destination Moon real fast and tell us sure. what year? I need to know now. I need, you, you're familiar I, with the film, I, right? Yeah, but What's I think it's guess? like the 20s. 20s? I'm going to guess 30s. But uh, Destination Moon. Feature I'll, film. I'll look it up right now. Okay. All right. Wow, the suspense Sorry, this is, moment is of really yes, building. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. He should have had it by now. I have Final Destination. No, Destination. Destination Moon, Moon guys. I have some bad news. Uh oh. 1950. 1950. 1950. Yes. you're thinking it's a different movie with John Archer, Warner Henderson. You're thinking it was a French film, wasn't it? No. Oh, I know which one you're thinking of. The French film. Journey to the Moon. Yeah, it goes into the, the eye. eye. It goes in the eye. That's a different ah, film. Ah, okay. That, no, right. just, so 1950, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, not Lumiere Brothers. That's the, um, oh, what's the guy? Journey to the, to the Moon. Oh, my gosh. The guy that's like the magician. The guy that made that film that you're thinking of, that I, I his name escapes me right now. He was a magician. He was yes, a French magician. Yes. And he would use There's actually all the, a movie about the making of the movie. Oh, well, yeah. Also, the movie Hugo was, isn't it the Lumiere Brothers? I thought it was. No, I it, I don't think it wasn't the Lumiere anyway, Brothers. okay. Now we got to find out what that is. <laughs> All right, magic of the Google. You guys, you guys talk here. I for have a, a negative of Destination Moon. My uncle produced it. That's how I know this. Isn't oh, that interesting? That is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's where that came from. I'm back on the five, four, three, two, one thing. <laughs> Even though there were missiles launched prior to that. Right. Okay. Right. All right. But but that certainly is embedded in our culture. Yes. For, for any yes. rocket launch, boy, if you didn't have that five, four, three, two, one liftoff. People would be disappointed. They would they would probably be calling NASA and say, "What is going on with your commentary on this launch, guys? You've you've 
screwed it up completely. It wouldn't be the same if one, one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, eight, nine liftoff. That doesn't have the same dramatic wowie zowie. Yep. Notice we're killing time here as Robert is uh, frantic. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> Um, okay, well, we'll have our uh, listeners it's coming respond up. to that. What year is that? Uh, okay. Robert, we have dead air. 1902. 1902. Malay, George Malay. That's who it is. Ah, okay. Yeah, 1902. So that was even Oh, earlier. actually, he started it, and it says 1898. Yeah. Yeah, so we're... This is a very, very early film. Yeah. 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 Good times. So we got our answers. Okay. We popped that zit. <laughs> Thank you. I love um, your analogies, Robert. Yeah. One last thing I thought about the film. I love that the alien didn't look, it didn't have like anamorphic, it, it didn't look like a human. And so often, I think that's one of my problems with, uh, I guess not the alien movies because those were spawned out of humans. It seemed, you know, like in Alien 3, it, it overpowers a dog. So it look, looks more like a dog. I guess the, the DNA is somehow fused with that alien species. So it makes sense that it would look like a human for those. But for a lot of our alien movies that we see, it's very clearly somebody in an alien suit. And I like that this was kind of a almost plant-like creature. It was very just kind of... Uh, it, it, with tentacles, an octopus-looking thing, and I like that element of the yeah, movie. It was, it was a sort of a pseudomorph. It could as- assume any shape that it really wanted to. I think yeah. that was that was part of the the buildup. You know, when they talked about every cell is a muscle, every cell is part of the brain, every cell is part of the nervous system. Right. All right. Well, I think this was a well-made Outer Limits episode. Nicely put. But no, I would, but seriously, I would but say Twilight Zone, but beautifully shot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Thank you. Hey, let's talk about some top five, shall we? I like this part. All right. <laughs> top five. So, Dwayne, one of the things that we do here is we talk about our top five, and uh, we've asked you to put together a list of your top five movies where, you're, where a character is trapped. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of go around and, and talk about your top. You'll talk with your number five. He'll do his number five. And mine. we'll kind of take turns moving our way up to number one. So let's start it off. What's your number one, or sorry, number five yeah, we go trapped movie? So, so number five on my list is the thing, the, the thing. one with Kurt Russell. Nice. And and the thing, I, the thing I love about this movie is it's based on a short story by John Campbell that was written in 1938. And if you've never read read the story, the story is called Who Goes There. Mm. It is a wonderful, wonderful science fiction story. So I, that movie is one of my favorites. I love the thing. It holds up so well. Have you seen the thing, Ira? I've seen pieces of it, not all the way through. Mm. I think you spoke about it last week. Yeah, I love the thing. I think it's such a great movie. It's really, really nicely done. All right, that's your number five. Ira? My number five is a movie you and I saw together Mm. a couple years ago. This is a little out-of-the-box thinking uh, here. Trapped. See, Ira I, always I like, does this. Oh. We'll talk about like people that are actually trapped, and he'll say, like, there was a character who was trapped in his emotions. <laughs> I love it. I'm I like a, that he does I like this. It. I'm, I like I'm it. a high-level yes, thinker. Yeah. <laughs> abstract. Yep. More intelligent people are more abstract. Of course. I'm not a meat-and-potatoes kind of guy. <laughs> Number five, Deliverance. Kind of guy. Deliverance. Deliverance. 1972 with Burt Reynolds and John Voight, where they're trapped. Obviously, they're trapped in the river, they're trapped in this environment, but they're also trapped in these horrible circumstances. Mm. Yeah. And trapped in their loveless marriages. Now, I, <laughs> what I do think is interesting is that both of you guys have named movies without females in them. Both of those don't have females. I think that's right. Oh. Yeah. yeah. What does that say? If there, if there are females in either one of those, they're very, very minimal. Yeah. 
and in fact, uh, some of the movies I was looking at, um, like uh, the movie, the Ryan Reynolds movie, I was looking at Buried. Also, no female. That Buried, it's only Ryan Reynolds. He's the only character in the movie. Hmm. Uh, he's talking to a female operator, but there's no other uh, female on screen. It's interesting. A lot of these trap movies are mainly male-dominated. Eh, just as it should be. <laughs> Sorry. Because women aren't trapped. Oh, I like oh. that. Good. I think we need to get a female on this show fast. I think so, too. Uh, my number five is a, um, a, a movie. It took me a little while to think about being trapped, but I think they definitely were trapped. Die Hard. They were trapped in the building and couldn't get out. What, it's on your list? It's on, on my list. It's on is your, it on your list? Did we double up? I like it when it... Yeah, doubles up. I didn't. I didn't think about being trapped at first, but then I went. Actually, yeah, he was trying to get out. He was trying to get out of the building the whole time because he even says, "You want to just open the doors, let me walk out of here." But he couldn't get out. So yeah, die hard. All right. So my number four was actually die hard. Die hard. Oh my gosh! Because, yeah, what a coincidence. Because he is he is trapped. He's he's alone. He's isolated. Mm-hmm. You know, he's lost his shoes and glasses. Cut his feet up. I mean. He, gets really beat up in that movie yeah um and he's you know got these these international terrorist assassin guys that he's he's trying to fight off so it's a it's a classic you know his only lifeline is the the walkie-talkie where mm-hmm. he's talking to the the black lapd cop yeah so and now he has a machine gun ho 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 yippee ki <laughs> yeah. uh, all right ira what's your number four and my number four is is die hard no 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 <laughs> I'm doing a little bit of a cheat here. It's like an extra half scoop of ice cream. Oh, here we go. Okay, I, I have an analogy with my little scoops. And sometimes I cheat and throw in an extra scoop. But I'm lumping two movies as if they were one. Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno, both done by Irwin Allen. All right. Uh, Poseidon Adventure, 1972. Two years later, it was um, Towering Inferno, 1974. First movie with Gene Hackman, Shelley Winters, and the other movie, Towering Inferno, of course, with Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. And um, Cheesy, uh, getting top stars and putting them in horrible circumstances where they're trapped. Mm. Uh, not necessarily uh, an important film, but still, while popular nonetheless, and you have a bunch of Hollywood stars who are trapped. I really feel like these are the kind of films that need to be made today. I'd love to see some of our more modern actors doing this. Uh, every they, they did a remake of the Poseidon Adventure. But I, I mean, seen, you know, but I, what, they, what we need is not necessarily a remake of oh, the movies, but we need saying. these kinds of movies. Every five years, we just need to have, <laughs> I mean, Ocean's Eleven was kind of getting to that level where you just have like, oh, okay, all of, all of Hollywood's going to come together for this stupid movie. We all, you know, just go grab some popcorn and just, just watch them be idiots for a little while and, and we'll all chuckle. And this is good. It's good entertainment. Maybe I that was that. Hail Caesar. Maybe. No. Maybe that. <laughs> I actually like Hail Caesar. I think I'm the only guy that did. Uh, all right. Nice choice. My number four is a movie from a few years ago starring Sam Rockwell. It's another space movie, Moon. Have you seen Moon? Oh, no, I haven't seen it. Have you seen it's, it? It's, I have it at home waiting to watch, and I haven't watched it yet. That's your homework assignment. Oh, wow. Okay. It's definitely, definitely one of these. Uh, it, I, I tend to. Ira starts to go kind of, um, how would you describe, your, your top fives tend to be a little uh, off, 
off the given topic of like, you know, we'd say trapped and you'd say, well, it's not quite trapped in the conventional sense. My movies tend to be very independent. It tends to be one of those movies that you're like, oh, I've, I've heard about that, but I've never seen that movie. That tends yeah. to be the top five kind of movies that I bring up. Cool. So Moon is definitely one of those. Sam Rockwell is an amazing actor. I think he's one of the best working actors out there. I, th- I think he's incredible. And this is really a tour de force for him. I think he does a really, really nice job in Moon. So if you haven't seen that, check that movie out. Cool. All right, what's your number three? Okay, my number three is one that you may have seen, but I think it was, for the atmospherics, it's a group of people trapped on a planet where it's become night, and it's going to be night for years. It's Mm. called Pitch Black. Yes. Vin Diesel kind of became, I think that was sort of one of his his first uh, introductions to Hollywood, but it was a, it was this this terrifying movie because these people crash land on this planet I think and then and then the sun sets and no one really knows exactly what happens when the sun sets on this planet but it's really bad something and bad all is of the creatures come out to play yeah I think and they're making a new one a new installment on, of that are aren't they, they? Okay. I think so it was, Vin Diesel's back it was pretty cool yeah. yeah not a terribly high budget not terribly popular but I still remember it okay Ira what's your number three number three Misery Wow, that's an interesting. 1990, track movie. James You're Cohen, right. Kathy Bates, uh, Stephen King, uh, Stephen King novel, and Rob Reiner. How about that? He directed that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Is that something? <sighs> you know, you just said something, and because we're talking about trap movies, something I've never realized until right now. Stephen King writes a lot of trapped movies because you've got The Shining, you've got Cujo. A lot of movies deal with being trapped. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. I, that yeah. that movie has one of the most cringeworthy scenes in all cinema when she breaks his yes. ankles. Breaks yes. his ankles. Oh my gosh! That is just so you know he's sitting there completely helpless on this bed and she's unhappy with him <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> what else are you going to say about Misery, Ira? Anything else you want to add? That's it. But you know what's interesting about my list? Uh, this time I didn't go out of the box. I'm you being didn't? quite literal. I was so expecting I, I for know. you to go out of the and box. I even asked you a few days ago because we we didn't we don't give it away in advance. But I said, well, the word trapped does that also mean psychologically, emotionally trapped? And you gave me one of your looks, like. <laughs> I, but I said, go for it. But I actually went more literal with my list this time. All right. Yeah. Okay. Misery is my third. My third is. Um, is a remake of a Russian film, uh, Tarkovsky film, if you know that from the 70s, but it is, a, I'd say, about 10 years ago, early 2000s, a Steve Soderbergh movie called Solaris. So if you haven't seen Solaris, it's really, it's very slow moving. The original Russian movie is, I think, like three and a half hours long. Very, very slow. So do not expect anything uh, to be happening at a fast pace. And even the remake is also extremely slow, And it's, it, but it's a character-driven film. And if you, if you can get yourself mentally prepared for that, there's really some actually interesting performances. I, I thought the remake was, uh, was better than the original, and I know I'm creating a cinematic sin by saying that because the original is held in such high regard. But uh, I, th- I thought Soderbergh and uh, George Clooney just turned out a really interesting... Um, shorter version of the Russian film that was more drawn, more geared towards American movie-going audiences, but those American movie-going audiences that were savvy towards those kinds of films. So I thought it was a really, really good movie. If you haven't checked that out, it's, uh, it's really nice. It's beautifully shot as well. It's really clean. It came, he did it right after he did uh, Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. I think Soderbergh is a mastermind at film. I think he could just touch on any base and he can, he can, 
pull it off really, really beautifully. And this is a, a good example of some of the, the bridges that he, he builds between artistic cinema and mainstream cinema, taking a really you know, well-known actor like George Clooney and possibly one of the biggest actors in the world and putting him in this little kind of independent film almost. And I think that's really, really interesting when he makes those kind of choices. Nice. Okay. Okay. Moving on. So my number two, number two, I'm sticking with the science science fiction theme is a movie called Dark City. Dark City, I've seen which Dark City. Is this incredible film noir? Yeah, but it's about not just being physically trapped, but being psychologically trapped. These humans have been scooped off the Earth, obviously, and they're being experimented on by some weird alien race, but they don't know it. Right, they're they're placed in a 1940s, very film noirish version of New York. Very dark, yeah. And it's very dark, and it's it's gorgeous, and and uh, Kiefer Sutherland plays this really bizarre character, um, who's this kind of weird Nazi doctor type. But it, it's it's just very weird and different and dark and scary and. I think everyone tormented. in that movie was very weird and dark and scary. Yeah, it, yeah. It, that's a great description of it. Weird, so it dark, was, scary. It was fun. It was yeah. just very different. All right. All right, what's your number two? I took a blind date to see that movie also. Yeah? Yeah. How, how could she see the movie if she was blind? Yeah. <laughs> uh, trapped, favorite trap movie number two? That's a movie I don't think we've spoken about. Cube. I, that's no. on my list. That's my number two. I love Cube. I love it. 1997, very Kafka-esque. Yeah. And uh, it's one of these examples. Canadian. It is a Canadian film. Yeah. And the... Um, the telling of the story is, I mean, there's a lot of loose ends and to actually sit down and explain what is going on here. The, the, again, the cinematography, the incredible set directors, uh, the, the maze of cubicles and the doors and then they're... Dwayne, have you seen Cube? Have you I have not seen it, so it's, I don't even know about it. like yeah. six people who are just wake up inside this cube and it's like a, a room with all these doors and the, the doors lead to other rooms that are just like the room they're in and certain rooms have traps in them certain rooms don't and they don't know how they got there they just woke up they don't know who they are and of course you have the same kind of situation where one person's kind of the asshole character not getting along and they're all trying to find their way out and they start to uncover reasons why they might have been selected to have been put there and it's really an interesting film and, and, and how do they escape and how do they get out it's really interesting so we both have that for our, our second That's choice. That's my number right? two, yeah. I love it, yeah. yeah. That's a great one. All right. Well, I, we'll just skip past me because that was so. my number two. All right, Dwayne, what's your number one? Okay, my number one is Alien. Alien. Sigourney Weaver mm -hmm. on that ship, you know, with this incredibly horrible creature. Yeah. And she's, she's just trying to survive. And it is, it is amazingly dark and tense and... I mean, I, I, I love that movie so much. Sure. It is, it is just this, uh, it, it so embodies the feeling of that claustrophobia and, and feeling like you are trapped, you are stuck, you are screwed. There's, <laughs> that should be on the, <laughs> you are trapped, you are stuck, you are screwed. That'd be a great poster. That belongs on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the art direction on that, the, the, the acting, everything really, the direction, it's all coming together on that film. It's, it's near perfect. I love that movie a lot. And I, I thought long and hard, it's not on my top five, but I, I really wanted that. If we did top ten, that definitely would have been on mine. Yeah. And Robert, I think we've shared this one quick story before that, uh, 
um, they didn't want to tell the what, the famous scene coming out of the body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did not tell the other actors on the set what was happening. They wanted to get their actual real, which is a very smart director's decision. Yeah. They wanted to be truly startled by what they yeah. saw. Yeah. And famously, a lot of the actors didn't get along very well when they were filming it. So there was a lot of friction on the set, too. All right, Ira, what's your number one? Number one. Again, I went for the literal. No metaphors here. Wow. Panic Room. Panic Room. Panic nice. Room. Uh, uh, David Fincher. What a bunch of movies he's done. David yeah. Fincher is a director. Uh, Jodie Foster. Uh, that was uh, Kristen Stewart who played the daughter. I didn't realize that until I did some research on the movie. But it's a smart movie. Yeah. And it could have been like a... With a, a different director, would be like a B movie. Sure. You know, the thugs, the bad guys, and they're stuck in the room. But it was so well executed, and it was smart, and I was real impressed with it. That's my number one favorite trapped film, hmm. Panic Room. Well, my number one choice is going to seem um, uncharacteristic, I think. It's going to be a little off-brand. But I watched this movie, loved every minute of it, and keep watching it over and over. It's, uh, it's only a couple years old, but I loved the Martian. I loved uh, just watching this guy stuck on a planet and then sciencing the shit out of everything Science to try to get himself back home. I, I thought it was really clever and um, I just, I liked watching it. I can, I, that's one of those movies I could pop on at any point and just be like, yep, I'm watching this. I'm down. So, you know, that, that one would have made my top 10 list. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it was like, it was probably just below the top five. The only reason that, that I, that I took it off is because I like the book so much better. Huh. And, and I, I think the book is just so brilliant. And there's a few things they're, they're minor. It's, it's really, it really is a well done movie. And a- accurately, I mean, it, except for the storms, right? It, Wasn't the, yeah, the, the storm, Martian storms? The storm now does Martian storms don't work that way because the air is just too thin. Right. But you know, if you, if you're willing to accept that little piece and suspend your disbelief for that, uh, he did an amazing job of really thinking through the engineering, if you will, of how do you stay alive on the surface of Mars uh, under those conditions. And it's, it's, it's a cool story. It really is. I love that movie. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, guess what? We did it. We recorded a podcast. Yes. Now I just got to hit the record button. We did a great <laughs> rehearsal, guys. And uh, we'll... No, uh, that's pretty much it. Anything else anybody wants to add? I'm, I'm really glad we had our guest. Yeah, me this too. Was, this was well, terrific. Well, thank you, guys. I, I had a great terrific. time. This was Dwayne, I have a, a feeling you'll be back. <laughs> yeah. You'll be back. I'll be back. Yeah. I'll be back. <laughs> All right. Well, that pretty much does it. If you guys want to uh, let us know any of your top five trapped movies, if uh, you want to share those with us, be sure to do that. You can send us an email to robert at moneyshotpodcast.net or... And or ira at moneyshotpodcast.net. Great. Or you can shoot us a message over at Twitter or Instagram at Money Shot Podcast. Any of those ways work. You can fold up a paper airplane and send it. Well, however you want to do it. Carrier Pigeon, we'll take any sort of messaging you've got. Uh, we'll be sure to read those comments on the air for next time. So, unless anybody has anything else to add. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, great. Dwayne, thanks great. so much for coming on. Uh, give our best to all the people over at JPL. <laughs> <laughs> Sally and Susan of course, and Marty. Of the, all all of your them. good friends there. Yeah, got all it. those people over there. And let them know that if they've got any trap movies or if they want to take umbrage with anything we've said on the podcast, please shoot us a po- po- an email or message over at uh, Podship. Pod shit. Pod shit. At moneyshotpodcast.net. All right. Anyway, until next time, keep watching movies. And we'll help you sort them out. <laughs>